character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And let me pray uh, before we start. Uh, I need it, uh, we all do. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of gathering as your people. Thank you for your powerful word that um, shapes us, that um, gives us a true uh, vision of reality, the truth. Uh, thank you for what it reveals about you and your grace to us in Jesus. Uh, speak to us today uh, through your word, through the Apostle Paul here in um, Romans 5. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, there's a popular um, three-part movie series from the 80s that a TV station recently showed. It's a well-known trilogy, a Hollywood trilogy, about time travel. It involves an energetic guitar-playing teenager, an eccentric scientist, and a DeLorean car fitted with something called a flux capacitor. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Put your hand up if you know what I'm talking about. Half of you, okay. That's good, that's good. Uh, I'm, yes, I'm talking about the uh, 1985 movie Back to the Future and the two sequels that followed it. And I have to admit, our family, we quite enjoy these movies. Um, even after seeing them for uh, like the hundredth time, when they come on TV, we seem to be drawn to it. And we find ourselves laughing at the movie and laughing or maybe cringing at Thomas's Biff Tannen impersonations. If you know the movie, you'll know about Biff Tannen. Uh, if you're not familiar with this movie, it's about a teenager named Marty McFly uh, he's played by Michael J. Fox, and he has a scientist friend, Dr. Emmett Brown, uh, or Doc for short, and he's invented this time machine. And ironically, in these movies, most of the time travel involves fixing up the problems that have been created by their time travel and their time machine. So in the, in the first movie, uh, Marty accidentally punches in the wrong date on the DeLorean's control panel, as you can see there, uh, anyway, he, he punches in 1955 and he ends up back with his parents as teenagers and he manages to interrupt their courtship of his own parents, of course, threatening his very own existence. And so he has to take some really desperate uh, measures, funny measures, uh, to ensure his parents get together, to ensure his existence. Uh, he succeeds, uh, much to the relief of his future self or present self, whatever it is, it does get confusing. Uh, in the second movie, uh, the series bad guy, Biff Tannen, manages to steal the time machine and he sneaks a Gray's Sports Almanac, uh, which contains 50 years of sports results from 1950 to 2000. He sneaks it back to his teenage self in 1955 and, of course, he can now bet on all the sports matches with guaranteed wins. And so he ends up filthy rich and the Hill Valley community is this dirt, dirt poor crime-filled slum rather than the quiet and peaceful middle-class suburb that it was in the 
previous future or alternate future or whatever it is. And up, once again, it's up to Marty and Doc to fix up the mess. And they do. It's great. Now, if you can ignore the uh, obviously ridiculous elements of these movies, there is some genuine truth conveyed in them, believe it or not. And that is that events of the past affect the future to varying degrees. Uh, even small events, a little sports almanac can have far-reaching future consequences. Uh, and that's true, isn't it? Uh, certain events can powerfully affect the future of individuals, of communities, of entire nations. Past events have implications for the future, and because of that they have for life in the present. That's a fact. Well, it's New Year's Eve. Uh, the year's come to a close, in case you haven't noticed. Can you believe how fast it's gone? Um, and New Year's Eve is often a time to pause and reflect. We've kind of already done that. Des did that before. Um, we look back on the past year and we look forward to the year ahead. Uh, and newspapers and TV stations have all kinds of articles and programs uh, reflecting on the big events of the past year, uh, the highs and the lows. Um, and many of these events, of course, have uh, an effect on us as a nation. Uh, some will continue into the future. I'm sure you can think of some. Uh, and some of these affect us too as individuals, don't they? Uh, to varying degrees. But it's often the more personal things, uh, isn't it, in our lives that have affected us the most and continue to do so. Um, the good and bad things, the highs and the lows. Uh, things like major life decisions we've made, career choices financial decisions, uh, relationship choices, uh, they have ongoing implications, either good or bad. Uh, they may be negative things, um, like physical or mental illness, uh, or injuries that we've had, or people close to us have had, or perhaps relational conflicts, or breakdowns even, with uh, partners, with family or friends. Uh, maybe it's our own sinful actions that have hurt others and le left them affected, or maybe we've been uh, hurt, uh, wronged by others and leave, left deeply hurt and affected. And whatever the main shaping events are for you, um, you'll know, you may well be thinking of them right now. Uh, they do shape who we are, they define us to some degree, don't they? Uh, perhaps to a, a very large degree. So when it comes to the future for us, uh, to the, even to the year ahead, so these past events have happened, they're, they're in the past, they can't be changed, but the future, as we look into a new year, it's uncertain, isn't it? It's full of uncertainty. Um, we naturally and rightly hope and plan for a good year, full of good things, but we really, at the end of the day, we don't know what it will bring. So how do we face an uncertain future? Well, we could head into the new year with some words of wisdom from Doc, from Back to the Future, Doc Brown himself, right at the end of the, of the third and final movie, um, he has this to say to Marty and his girlfriend, Jennifer. And it seems to the viewers watching the movie, um, it seems. He says, your future hasn't been written yet. No one's has. Your future is whatever you make it, so make it a good one. Yes, Doc, we will, you know. Um, this statement, there's something refreshingly hopeful and inspiring about that quote, isn't it? And you can actually buy a T-shirt, by the way, with that on it, if you like that one, and you can wear that around. There is some truth in it, isn't there? But it's, at the end of the day, it's a little bit too, a little bit too simple, um, maybe a little bit ignorant even. 
For one thing, um, do we really have as much control of our lives, of our future as uh, destiny as Doc would like to think? Maybe not. Things do happen um, beyond our control that affect our lives and shape our future. Um, so moving into the future, surely we should expect the same, both highs and lows, right? Uh, even though we should, of course, plan and prepare to make it a good one, we know that um, highs and lows will come. And so this more realistic outlook at least helps us to expect the good and the not-so-good events of the coming year, don't they? But if you're a Christian here today, uh, if you're a person who's come to um, believe in Jesus and to trust in him as your saviour and your Lord, there are much better words of wisdom uh, for you to, uh, and I to live by, to face the future with, with a, a sure and certain hope, with confidence and, and even joy, regardless of what events the new year brings. And this passage today that we're looking at from um, Paul's letter to the Romans, it, it helps us as believers to, um, to view life uh, with new eyes, with a, a new perspective, the true perspective. Uh, it helps us to uh, rightly process the events of our past and to face uh, an uncertain earthly future in the knowledge of a certain ultimate one. Because for Paul, uh, the believer's long-term destiny uh, has been written. Uh, he would disagree with Doc on that point. And, and thankfully also we're not in control, full control of our lives. We do have some control, but at the end of the day, a, sov a sovereign and loving God, our God, is. Uh, and so with the remainder of our time, uh, let's have a look at these uh, verses, uh, these first 11 verses of Romans 5. And we're going to do it in four parts, and you can see it in your outline, uh, four little sections. Firstly, in verses 1 and 2, um, I've called it Paul's pause. Paul's pause. In these opening two verses, Paul pauses to consider the past, the present and the future, a bit like we do on New Year's Eve. When it comes to the past, uh, Paul reflects on one past event, uh, the greatest, most defining event for any believer, and that is justification through faith. You can see it at the start of verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith. Uh, and with those three words, justified through faith, he, he sums up everything that actually he said up to this point in, in the letter of Romans. Um, as a church, you may have been here, we worked our way right through Romans um, a year or two ago, and you may remember Paul's emphasis in those first four chapters. Uh, basically, he argued um, that the only way anyone can have a right standing before God is by faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, that's because, as he showed, every person without exception is unrighteous and sinful before God. And so all, all of us are rightly condemned and face God's just and good wrath uh, on sin, on, on our sin. So there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. Uh, we're completely unable to save ourselves. But the good news that comes in, in the gospel is that God sent his son to bear our sin on the cross, uh, to be judged in our place and bore the wrath we deserved. And when we realise our need, our situation and our inability to save ourselves and come with the desperate empty hands of faith, we receive this free gift from God revealed in the gospel, justification, which simply means a declaration 
that we are perfectly right before God. Perfectly right, a right standing based on nothing we've done but on what Jesus did for us. No longer condemned, but justified. Justified through faith. That's, that's great news. That's really great news to be declared by God to be right before him uh, based on his grace. And if you're, if you're a believer here today, that is the ultimate defining event in your life. Uh, it eclipses anything else, past, present or future. Because as Christians, of course, we're not just earthly people defined by earthly events, not even by our earthly birth, ultimately. Um, not just that. We are people who've been born again. If you're a Christian, uh, we are a new humanity entirely in Christ, a new creation. That's what defines us. Uh, if we have faith in Jesus, we have been justified. You have been justified by God, declared right in his sight, and this alone determines your ultimate uh, destiny, but it also greatly affects our present experience, which is what Paul now goes on to state. He does it briefly here in verses 1 and 2, and then he fills it out through the rest of the passage and actually right up to the end of chapter 8. So what are the pr present and future effects? Um, we could say the results of this past justification through faith. Well, Paul mentions three things uh, in these verses, and he adds a couple more later. Firstly, peace with God. You can see in verse 1, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So where there, where there was hostility and wrath, there is now perfect peace. Uh, peace as an objective reality, uh, not dependent on how you feel, how we feel uh, at any one moment. If you've come to trust in Jesus and what he's done for you, you are justified so you have peace with God. Always. That's a brilliant news. That's... Um, our greatest need has been met, peace with God. We sing a song here, a kid's song, the greatest treasure in the whole wide world is peace with God. Second thing Paul says, uh, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So Paul is here describing grace, God's unmerited favour, as a realm that we've gained access to, like a, kind of like a key or maybe like the, um, the wardrobe in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, through which the children gained access into this whole other realm, Narnia. And of course, in, in this context, um, grace is the realm that we access to by faith in Jesus. And it's so important for us to know, for you to know if you're a believer, that you're not measured anymore at all by your performance by anything you do, by coming to church, by reading your Bible, by doing good things, you are, your standing before God is based on the perfect righteous standing you have in Christ by being declared righteous. Uh, that's wonderful, friends. We permanently stand in grace, the continual undeserved favour of God. So rest in it. Rest in it and rejoice in it. Thirdly, Paul says, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. In hope, hope looks forward. When Jesus returns, we'll see his glory in full, the glory of God. Um, but by the, the stunning thing is that we get to share in his grace. By God's grace, we get to share in his glory. Um, because just as Jesus rose again in a new and glorified uh, state, we will receive glorified, resurrected bodies and live with him 
uh, forever in a new glorified heavens and earth. And Paul says right now in the present, we boast, we rejoice in this hope of the glory of God, this coming day. And uh, friends who are trusting in Jesus, uh, we need to soak ourselves in these truths and pause with Paul often, uh, daily, um, continuously live in the light of these great couple of verses. It's a great way to end the year being reminded of them. Peace with God, standing in grace and gladly boasting and rejoicing in the hope of future glory. A uh, wonderful way to finish the year. And of course, when we read this or hear this, we, as Christians, we, we give a hearty amen, don't we? Amen to what Paul says. But what he says next in verse 3 comes as a bit of a surprise. Uh, point two on your outline, I've called it a sovereign surprise. Having just said that we believers boast in hope of the glory of God, he immediately goes on to say, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Do we? Is he serious? I don't know about you, uh, but my response to this line is, is a little different. And yet Paul says it in exactly the same way as the last phrase, as if the two are equally true. Um, it's even more startling when you read in the original language because Paul actually uses the exact same word in both cases. Uh, but because the word translated to boast can be seen in a, quite a negative way, boastful, but, um, the NIV has substituted glory in this case. Um, it's so that we rightly understand, Paul, that he's not, um, he's not referring to some sort of warped masochism, that finding pleasure in pain, you know, bring it on. Um, he's not doing that. But it does tend to lose a bit of that impact, you see, so, um, that, that Paul is saying that the same response we have when contemplating the future glory, we have the same response to our suffering in our lives. Um, that is uh, a surprise. Um, for one thing, Paul was a realist, right? He's a realist. He's unlike some streams of Christianity. Paul uh, has no doubt that suffering is very much a part of the normal Christian life. Um, and he's speaking here of suffering in a general sense, by the way, just the, the, the trials and hardships of life in a fallen world. But to glory in our sufferings, to boast in them, rejoice in them, well, I know I'm not very good at that. Um, personally, I, uh, my response is more often frustration uh, or despair or even anger. Um, but having surprised his readers with this claim, he goes on to explain why we Christians glory in our sufferings. And it has to do with knowing something. Uh, knowing that our suffering initiates a process that has a positive outcome. You can see it in verse 3. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Uh, what he's saying is that in the hands of our, our wise and sovereign God, suffering has a way of, of shaping us for our ultimate good. And of course, if, we, if we're familiar with other parts of the Bible, um, it doesn't surprise us to say it like that. Uh, as Christians, we often quote, uh, quote Romans 8:28 to each other, um, that for believers, God works all things together for good, according to his purpose. We do, don't we, if you've been a Christian a while? And we rightly emphasise that all things, God works all things for good, knowing full well that it includes the highs and the lows of life, that suffering produces something good. 
Uh, in another place, in Romans 8, uh, the slide will come up, Paul makes the point even clearer. He says that we are co-heirs with Christ if, indeed, we share in his sufferings in order that we also may share in his glory. God's purposes for his people is that suffering is the path to glory. The only path, in fact. Wow, that's, um, that's amazing. Uh, that should affect our attitude to suffering. But what about this process here in the text? Paul says, suffering produces endurance. Uh, of course, when suffering comes, we naturally and rightly try and avoid it. Right? No one likes it. But when, you can't, when we can't uh, escape it, we have no choice, really, but to persevere in it. Um, so suffering produces perseverance if you can't escape it, uh, or endurance. The ability to stick it out uh, through the tough times and not give up. And that's true for all people. But perseverance isn't the end of the process. Paul says perseverance produces character. Uh, and what he means, the word he uses there means proven character, tested character. Like you might see in a, in a, in a vet, senior veteran in some field as opposed to a, a young rookie. Uh, and in this context, uh, the tested proven character is one of godly maturity, uh, Christ-likeness you could say. The character that you often see, we often see in um, older mature Christians, which is the result of years of perseverance through life's trials and hardships. So not surprisingly, it's those who have suffered the most, who most often uh, display a Christ-like character. But it's also in these godly mature believers where often you see a deep uh, grounded hope, a sure hope, the hope of Christ's glorious return, which is the final stage that Paul mentions there in verse 4. Hope is the end of this, this process, initiated by sufferings. It's what the Bible calls sanctification, now, if you want that technical term. And, it, and it's true for all believers, not just the super godly few. Um, when Jesus returns, all believers will be fully conformed to his image and godliness. So for Paul to know about this process used by a sovereign God for our ultimate good helps us to glory in our sufferings. But he isn't finished yet. Everything he said is true. Uh, we need to know it, but it doesn't end there. It's not just about knowing some information, knowing some cold sort of doctrine or theology, or about some cold and clinical process. That's because the sovereign God who's working things for our good is not a distant and impersonal God. Christian hope, this hope that Paul talks about, is grounded in love, in God's lavish personal love for you and I. It's the third point on our outline. Lavish love. Paul says that Christian hope, this hope that results from suffering, uh, in verse 5, does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Uh, some verse. Uh, but what does it mean? God's love poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Well, I, I think it's safe to say he doesn't mean some great emotional experience at conversion or some ambiguous 
sense or feeling of God's love in our hearts. Uh, not every Christian experiences either of those. In fact, from the, the Christians I've talked to, most don't. Um, and what Paul says here is clearly an experience, but it's an experience that's true for every believer. He includes all believers in this. Some kind of subjective sense of God's love in our hearts. So what does he mean? Well, we don't have to go far to find out because he links this verse with the next verse in verse 6. He says, You see, you see, at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. So these two verses go together. And what it tells us is that this subjective experience of God's love in verse 5, which is true for all believers, is grounded in and derived from the objective historical facts of the gospel, that, that past ultimate defining event, the death and resurrection of Jesus and our justification in him. So it appears that God's love poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit involves a personal spiritual awakening to the fact that I'm ungodly and powerless to save myself, but that Christ, you know, God in the flesh, uh, died for me. Uh, in order to save me. Um, Paul's talking about that, that moment that's true for every believer when the gospel, the good news of Jesus, becomes good news for me. Um, that the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son loved me, loves me, and gave his son up to die for me. It's when the gospel becomes personal, when we come to, to trust Christ personally and we're saved or converted, born again, whatever you want to call it, we come to know and experience the love of God for us in Jesus and that we're forgiven, forgiven and that he's our heavenly father. Do you know this love? Friends, do you know this love? Um, this lavish love, it is lavish love. I pray that you do, uh, if not that, that you will by God's grace. Uh, it is lavish love, uh, it's extravagant love. And it's also unworldly love or otherworldly love uh, as Paul now goes on to highlight in the next two verses. And what he does here is to contrast the greatest of human love, worldly love, with God's extreme otherworldly love shown in the cross of his son. He says in verses 7 and 8, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, his point is clear. Right? Lay, laying down your life for another person is the ultimate act of love. Uh, and it's a rare thing. It's a very rare thing. Most cases in history are people dying for a family member or a close friend. Even rarer is what Paul mentions here. Dying for, he says, a righteous person. He's not meaning righteous in that absolute um, theological sense, but in a moral, a civil sense. A decent, upright citizen. To die for someone like that would be an immense act of love uh, and extremely rare. What about a good person? So, you know, someone that's really likeable, someone who uh, does good things for people. Um, Paul thinks... That for a good person, he says, someone might possibly dare to die. But what he really wants to highlight is that God's love for us is infinitely greater 
because of our extreme unworthiness, unlovability, you can call it, and because of the extreme worth of the one who died for us. Because God demonstrates his love for us in the death of his perfect son for sinners. For sinners, wretched sinners. And we should let that word sink in. Sinners, that's, that's us, that's me, that's you, in our natural fallen self, uh, fallen state. Um, of course, we may not always think we're that bad, um, but that's the nature of sin, right? It's, it's very deceptive. We are in far worse condition than we know or realise. We need the Bible to tell us the truth about us. Um, and if you have any doubts, go back and have a read of Romans 1-3 to sometime. And yet, God has loved us, the unlovable, while we were still sinners, while we were at our very worst, Paul uses the words ungodly, um, enemies, he says. In that state, God gave up his son. His son... Um, this isn't one sinner dying for another sinner. This is Christ, the King and Lord of all, uh, the eternal second person of the Trinity, through whom everything was made. He became flesh and bone and died for you and for me while we were a sinner. That's, that is love. That is unworldly love. It's extreme it's uh, lavish and it, it's, it's even scandalous, really. And because this sovereign, loving God has done the hardest of things, loving you and I, unlovable sinners, in this extreme way, the rest of his plan for us is absolutely guaranteed. The rest is easy, you could say, uh, on his part. That's Paul's next point in the final section. Uh, the final point on your outline in verses 9 to 11. So verses 9 and 10, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were sinners, uh, so while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Again, the point's clear Paul's point is clear because of this great defining past event of our lives justification through the cross of Jesus our if you're a believer our final destin destination our final salvation is guaranteed God's done the hardest thing loving the unlovable giving up his own son to death for us um, and because of what he's done in the past how much more will he complete his future plan we who are now justified, reconciled, deeply loved children of God. If he's done the hard part, of course he'll do the rest. Uh, if, if you were to do the, the hard thing and spend a couple of hundred dollars on a remote control drone for your child's Christmas present, of course you'll give them the batteries for it. Of course you'll, you'll wrap it up in nice wrapping paper. That's, that's easy, that's a delight to do for them. How much more will our great and infinitely loving God delight in lavishing his love on his children in the future and the present, for that matter? Uh, Paul will later say, go on to say in chapter 8, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? 
all things he's planned for us. These are incredibly comforting and, and reassuring words, um, I think. I don't know about you, but this, all this makes me want to praise God. It makes me want to glory in him, to boast in him. And that's um, how Paul finishes this, uh, this passage in, uh, in verse 11. Not only is this so, everything is said, but we also boast in God himself through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So as justified believers, at peace with God, standing in grace, uh, we boast in three things, according to Paul from this passage. We boast in hope, guaranteed sure hope of the coming glory of God. We boast in our sufferings, here and now, knowing that our sovereign and loving God is, is using them for our good. And we boast in God himself, who's lavished his unworldly love on us in the cross of his Son, uh, reconciling us to himself. And so he will certainly finish what he started, our full and final salvation for our, our ultimate eternal good and for his eternal glory. So some final thoughts to close. Uh, firstly, uh, it needs to be said, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, sadly, none of what we've looked at today applies to you. Um, rather than being justified um, and at peace with God, you do remain condemned, rightly condemned for your sin and rebellion against God who made you for himself. And all I can say is please, please uh, hear this good news of God's lavish love for you. Um, submit yourself to the truth about yourself and about what God has done for you in Jesus and, and receive this free gift of salvation. But if you are a believer... Uh, trusting in Jesus, a person trusting in Jesus, please know that the past events of your life or the present situation you find yourself in is not what ultimately defines you. Um, your past sins have been completely forgiven, washed away by the blood of Jesus who died because of God's lavish love for you. You are justified, you have peace with God and you stand in grace. Um, you have no no need or right to carry any guilt for your past actions. They've all been dealt with in full at the cross. Uh, and if you've suffered in the past, or if you are suffering right now, uh, you need to know that, firstly, that your ultimate future is secure uh, and will be completely free from any suffering, but know also that your suffering will, in the end, enhance the future glory that you'll experience uh, when your Saviour Jesus comes again. Uh, Paul says in, in Romans 8 that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Not worth comparing. That's the truth. And finally, in light of all this, we believers uh, can look with confidence to the new year ahead that whatever it brings us, um, good or bad, we remain safe and secure in the love of our sovereign Lord and God, knowing that our present experience, all of it, has a purpose and that our ultimate destiny is guaranteed. Our future is written uh, and it's far better than anything we can possibly imagine. It really is. It really is. Let me pray. 
Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for these wonderful truths um, that you spoke through your Apostle uh, Paul. Um, we pray that uh, we would pause with him uh, often, always, uh, and live in the light of these great truths of your gospel. Um, help us to know your love um, deeply, uh, even if we never have before. Uh, may we experience your love poured into our hearts through your spirit, grounded in the cross of your Son, who you gave up out of your lavish love for us. And Father, as we move into a new year um, with uncertainties, um, uh, faced with, uh, with the good and the bad that will come, uh, we pray that we would do so anchored in these truths, uh, knowing you use everything in our lives for our good, especially our suffering, uh, the trials of our life. Thank you that you are turning them for our good and that ultimately um, our present sufferings will not compare They'll uh, fade into insignificance in the light of the glory that you have in store for us. Help us to um, be buoyed and to rejoice in you, uh, in our great God who has loved us so deeply. Uh, amen.